Welcome to Unexpected Points. This is Kevin Cole here with your week three wrap up where I'm going to go over the grades. I'm going to go over the stats. I'm going to go over the trends. I'm going to try to battle some narratives that I'm hearing out there. Uh, I'm going to wade into overrated, underrated wars. You know, that's my one of my specialties after props to me calling Russell Wilson slightly overrated at the beginning of last year and being pummeled for it. Uh, but before I get into that, you'll notice that Ryan Paganetti is not here today. Unfortunately, Ryan is not going to be able to join us anymore uh, this season. He's got a lot of consulting work that he's doing now, so he's going to be focusing on that. But perhaps we can get him back on as a guest at some point. So I'll say to Ryan out there, thank you so much for joining me these last few weeks. And, you know, it's going to be tough, but I will carry on here with the most dense analytical and statistical analysis that you can find in the football space. But I will see you again on the other side. Shine on, Ryan Paganetti. All right, so before we get into the the podcast on a serious note, check out all of the PFF uh, content that we have out there, Edge subscriptions, Elite subscriptions. Of course, with the Elite subscription, you get not only all of the different fantasy football information that you're going to want available there, my showdown contests, uh, but you also get the props tool, betting information. The props tool has been doing really well this season. It's powered by projections that I help with and share uh, projections that I help with. It is also, we have green line, which has all the relevant information on every particular game. It's not only going to have, you know, leans in particular directions, whether it's on sides or totals, but it's also going to give you just a layout of where the money's going uh, on each side, where the tickets are going, what players are questionable or not, their PFF grades, um, their injury status, their PFF grades that you can look at there, how the game has been trending. It's just a ton of information for anyone who wants to do some sports betting on a recreational basis or, you know, trying to make a little scratch out there. Go ahead and check out everything at pff.com. All right, so let's get into the games. I'm going to start with some of Uh, the games that I'm pretty sure everyone watched at least the first half or first three quarters. And that would be Monday night football Eagles at Cowboys 41, 21, the Cowboys come away with the victory and it was a blowout. So I don't want to get too much into, you know, the particular numbers. If you look at Jalen hurts numbers, when he finished the day, it actually doesn't look as bad as you might think. I mean, you look at his, his stat line, you say, Oh, you know, he completed uh, 65% of his passes, 8.4 yards per attempt. Uh, he had a couple of interceptions, but he also had a couple of touchdowns. He added in 30 something rushing yards, you know, not a bad game for Jalen hurts. Well, uh, the numbers would disagree with you a bit on that. Not only from a grading perspective where he graded at 58. So that's his worst grade so far this year. Um, as you've been paying attention to my quarterback ranking articles, you've seen that he was up near the top so far this year because in his first couple of games, I mean, his offensive grade was 89.5 in the first game. Uh, 76.3 in the second game, and then it fell here. Now, uh, overall, he had a decent rush grade uh, for last night. So overall, he was a 66.1 in his grade. So not awful. It's going to drop him a bit. Um, But if you look at the advanced stats, that's when he got hurt, probably worse even than the grading is relative to to where he was. He was a negative 0.3 EPA per drop back. That's really bad. And if we're going to look at, you know, what was driving a lot of that, what was driving the huge negative there from an EPA perspective, well, 
you know, he had the interceptions, right? And the pick six being the biggest one there. We graded both of those as turnover worthy plays. The first interception where he was trying to go up top to Rager and it was uh, it, it was intercepted. I think that was a pretty obvious one as far as being a turnover worthy play. The second one where he was going to Devontae Smith and then Smith fell down was a little bit more questionable. Uh, but we still dinged him on that. We d- he did have two uh, big time throws though, so we did give him some some credit there for the big time throws. So he's not totally down there. And then the other plays that ended up hurting him in this game, well, you know, he was sacked. It was a big sack on a fourth and ten where he took a negative three point six EPA there. And then, like I mentioned, the two interceptions he had about a negative twelve thirteen EPA on those, and that's just going to crush your numbers. Um, when you take big time plays like that and you don't convert a lot of third downs and they had really difficulty converting. I think they were over in the first half as far as trying to convert those third downs Uh, on the other side of the ball, Dak Prescott, he had a 77 passing grade. He had overall his EPA per play is a little bit lower. It was only about 0.15 per play versus per dropback. He was 0.3. So 0.3 is a good number. 0.3 is like a top, I don't know, eight ish five-ish sort of number for, for a season. So that's pretty good. He was a little bit down on per play because of the fact that he had a couple of like aborted runs where it was, you know, first and 10, second and 10, where there's only picking up maybe a yard or something like that. So those hurt a little bit. And that took away from the overall number where, you know, there was a couple of like a read options where he kept and then he didn't really do anything with it. Uh, but the big one was the fact that they had it down near the goal line and he failed on that fourth and one sneak. Now, but it's his fault or not, I'm not quite I'm not quite sure. But if we're allocating that to him as part of EPA per play, that was a negative four and a half EPA play because we're assuming he's going to convert that at a higher than 50% rate. Did not do so. And that was a problem. Um, game management side. I mean, I think everyone saw and uh, I probably should have uh, uh, everyone saw maybe even saw the audio of Peyton Manning wondering why he was not taking a timeout. McCarthy was not taking a timeout during the Manning cast broadcast um, at the end of that first half. It was pretty insane. I mean, there was the, the, the clip that everyone was sharing was when he wasn't doing it after third down, after fourth down, when it was fourth down and five that he wasn't doing it, but he also could have done it when it was third and 23. I mean, it was second and 30 something. Then it was third and 23. He didn't call a timeout where there was over a minute left. I think there was a minute 20 left. It ran down. They ran another play. And I think at a certain point, McCarthy, like it went so far, the refs asking him about it. He's watching the time click off. He sees they have the lead, all that sort of stuff. At a certain point, I think he was like, eh, fuck it. Like it would just look bad if I took the time out right now. I think he kind of knew that he was supposed to take the time out there, but he realized that it might look even worse. So he had to just commit to the bit right there and just continue going without the timeout. Mike McCarthy and his game management decisions continue to be troubled. But uh, Cowboys now firm command of the NFC East. We're still seeing the Eagles. You know, the Eagles have been okay. They're they're up there a little bit. Uh, But then Washington and then uh, there was another funny moment during the Manning cast where they put the odds of winning the division. And the the Giants, according to ESPN's FPI, were at, I think it was 2% chance of winning the division so he was like oh that's not good um but anyway i'm enjoying the manning cast so anyone who's who's watching that i especially enjoy it when peyton is getting on it about timeouts and things like that because it just shows you how these quarterbacks they're going through these scenarios in their mind they're just as well trained if not better trained than a coach when it comes to a lot of these circumstances and you know somewhat of the absurdity of putting all this on the head coach where their primary primary 
primary responsibility is management, right? Isn't figuring out all these different little aspects of the game, but figuring out how to manage the entire organization. Okay, so the next game, we'll go straight to Sunday Night Football, since I assume that most of you guys watch that one too. Green Bay at San Francisco. Green Bay wins 30-28. to 28. Before I get into the end of game stuff, obviously amazing game from Rodgers coming from behind there. Uh, let's get the overview stats here. Rodgers had an 87 grade. Garoppolo only a 53 passing grade. Garoppolo's grade continues to be low. I mean, if you look at this differential between Garoppolo's EPA per play and his grading, it's enormous. It's the biggest in the league. Uh, Right now, seasonal EPA per play, Garoppolo is sixth, but his grading is 27th, his ranking in those two different categories. And I think both play to why they made this trade, right? They made the, the trade up to get Lance is because they figure you can juice a little bit more out of Lance than what you're getting out of Garoppolo. He has zero, what we would classify as a big time throw so far this year. For those, uh, just a quick you know, primer on it again, we rate every play from positive two to negative two by half point increments. Anything that's lower than a negative one, a one, negative one or lower or a positive one or higher, we consider either a turnover worthy play or a big time throw. So zero big time throws. And these are big time throws are something where the top guys in the NFL right now, um, if we look at, let's see, what's the biggest, what's the best big time throw rate of anyone over the last two years? It looks like, like again, so Garoppolo is zero and you have guys this year who are doing it at a, you know, 10% rate. We've had that happen before. Um, so it's pretty bad for, for Jimmy G in that concern. Um, he is getting, though, decent EPA down the field. I was surprised going into uh, week three that he was one of the top five guys as far as the EPA that he had generated on passes that had at least 15 air yards. So it's really been short passes and then longer passes for Garoppolo, um, although he's not really pushing the ball down the field that much. Now, if we look at... Uh, Rogers, he had five big time throws in this one game, zero turnover worthy plays. Jimmy had three turnover worthy plays. And I don't know the, the one where Jair Alexander made that amazing play on it. I'm a little bit, eh, I'm not, I'm not quite so sure about that. The other turnover worthy plays and one that was a major, major negative to his grading was the one where he threw the ball down where I think he thought that he was doing some sort of, uh, avoiding a sack and spiking the ball into the ground while he was getting hit. It ended up being ruled a fumble. Uh, That was a negative two in our grading. So the worst possible grade, he also got a negative 1.5 on a dropped interception where he was throwing over the middle to uh, George Kittle and Kittle kind of slowed down. He threw it and it was dropped. So major, major negative plays there. And that's what really drove down his grading so far this year. But I don't know if we're going to miss see the, the move to Lance only because like I said, he's still sixth in EPA per play. They lost on a last second field goal. He's probably playing well to continue forward. And the problems that we're seeing with Justin Fields that we'll discuss later and Zach Wilson and Trevor Lawrence isn't exactly an endorsement of let's get our rookie out there as quickly as we can. Uh, Rogers, you know, one of the main reasons he's able to be successful in this game. And this is a little shocking 16.7% pressure rate in this game. Uh, we were not getting the pressure 
Uh, Bosa, Nick Bosa only got two pressures, but Rodgers was extremely quick in his time to throw. And I think this is a good game plan. He was only 2.3 seconds on his time to throw. Uh, Garoppolo was pressured over 40% of the time. So it was really a flip-flop there than what you may have expected from these respective defensive lines and offensive lines. And, uh, you know, some of the ones that were questioned as far as the decisions at the end, let's focus on the game management stuff. So one that was questioned a lot was Green Bay when they was in the fourth quarter. There was two minutes and 43 seconds left. They were up by three. They kicked a field goal on fourth and four from the 20-yard line. And people, there's a lot of talk. I think ESPN's numbers said they should have gone for it. There was talk of being up by six isn't any better than being up by three. I mean, there's an element of that, right? You're forcing the other team to be more aggressive. You're forcing the other team to potentially score a touchdown to win in regulation rather than go for a field goal. Uh, be, be more conservative, go for a field goal, and then go to overtime where it still gives you a chance to win. I agree with all that, but what I don't think people appreciate enough, and I'm going to talk about this on some other fourth down decisions later in these games, is, again, you have this dead zone for going on fourth down, where when you're very close to the end zone, your probability of making the field goal is extremely high, but your probability of scoring a touchdown if you convert is also very, very high. So that gives you a lean towards going for it. Now, when you're at let's 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 say 40 yards away 30 beyond 35 for sure but more like 40 yards away and your chance of making the field goal is getting is going lo- is getting lower exponentially it's hard so that so the, the field goal chance is not there so it's really just a turnover if you're going to punt the ball at that point um so so then going for it while you don't have a great chance if you convert scoring a touchdown you, you do have a great chance if you convert of get, getting those three points, getting the field goal, you're raising that a lot. So that's a good place to go for it. If you're at least 40 yards away from the end zone, even all the way back into your own territory, because you're avoiding what is essentially the turnover plus field position of punting the ball. But when you're between, you know, I don't know, the 15 yard line, when you're trying to score, you're on the plus, the, the plus 15 here. So you're between the 15 yard line and the 35 ish yard line. 30-ish yard line, your chance of making the field goal is really, really high because kickers are really good consistently through about 50 yards. And the estimated here that we had estimated for this field goal attempt was an 88% success rate if you're kicking a 37-yard field goal, which is this would be here, 37, 38-yard field goal. So that's really, really high. So you have to think about that as an opportunity cost because even if you convert this fourth and four, and a fourth and four is not an easy conversion, right? It's You're definitely less than 50%. With a great offense, maybe you could say you're 40-something percent of of uh, converting. So again, you're giving up the 90-ish percent chance of making the kick. You're converting at maybe a 45%, 40 to 45% rate. And even if you convert, you're not gaining anything immediately. I mean, you could score a touchdown, of course, from 20 yards out, but you're probably not. You're probably more like you're getting it to the 15-yard line. Well, you still got to score from the 15-yard line. You know, that's not to the one-yard line. That's not to the two-yard line. That's not getting right next to the end zone. You still got to score and your chance of you're not, really, you're not improving much at all your chance of making the field goal because the field goal percentage is so high. So for that reason, the Ben Baldwin bot uh, numbers that I would that, that I've crunched here, all of that stuff actually said that going for the field goal was the better move there. I know ESPN had different numbers, but I think people just really need to think about the field positioning when you're between or in that dead zone between your opponent's 15 and your opponent's 35. It's more complicated than you think just going for in those situations, especially once we get to something like fourth and four, where it's, it's a, it's a more difficult conversion. 
So that's the first thing. The other thing that came up to some blame at the end of the game, and I think was a major, major problem, were there, there are two plays before the 49ers scored that last touchdown, right? That put them up. And they scored too early, but it was more than that. It was the fact that they snapped the last play with 12 seconds left on the, on the, the play clock. And the play before that, they snapped with 13 seconds left on the game clock, the game uh, play clock. I'm a little bit less critical as the play before because they were very far away from the end zone, all that sort of stuff. Um, but that last play, there really wasn't any reason to do that at that point. They had all three timeouts, right? Uh, they had, uh, they had just a lot of. They could have. They could have killed one of. Uh, they could have killed a Packers timeout. They could have taken it all the way down, and it just seems like, yeah, you want to score. You want to prioritize scoring. But at least run that clock down to five or less, five or fewer seconds, right? Um, and there's a quote from uh, PFF's own Deontay Lee, and uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus here, but I think that it was an interesting take that he had when Hayden Winks pointed this out, where his point was, how about we just stop them with 37 seconds left instead? You know, sounds like a good defensive coach there. But the thing I'll say about that is, it's like a false dichotomy in a way, right? Yes. We want to stop them and you should be able to stop the other offense with 37 seconds left, but that doesn't preclude you from doing the right thing when you have the ball on offense and running the clock down a little bit more and not leaving that much time. You have your timeouts. You control that clock right there. You should be able to almost pinpoint how many seconds are left on that clock at the end of the game. You should certainly be able to get it under 30 every single time. Right. And, uh, but it was at 37 seconds right there. So again, it's a false dichotomy. It's not, you either do good clock management or you play good defense. Playing good defense has nothing to do with the clock management. You can do both. So let's do both next time uh, for the 49ers and, and end up, uh, you know, giving a little bit less time and maybe winning that game is what they could have done there at the end. Um, Just to get some of the EPA numbers, which I think are interesting that, uh, just to go back to Jimmy and and Aaron Rodgers, which I forgot to do, is that, again, Jimmy had about a 30, 40th percentile EPA per play at 0.12. And that includes that weird fumble, that includes the interception, that includes that other stuff. So, again, his EPA was much better than his grading, which was you know down in the 50s, which was a really, really poor grade. Okay, before um, – actually, let, let's go right into the next game. So I want to talk this – uh Cleveland Chicago game first because there's so much being talked about this right now. So 26 to 6 uh Fields numbers some of the worst ever. Uh just to give you an idea, he had 68 passing yards, he lost 67 yards due to nine sacks. That's one net passing yard on 29 dropbacks. Uh this is a number that was pulled by Chase Stewart uh football perspective on twitter it says since 1980 there have been 13 games where a quarterback averaged less than 0.25 net yards per attempt with 15 or more pass attempts but there have been none since 2004 so this is kind of the worst game we've seen in a generation probably from a efficiency perspective on their their passing there uh let's let's look at some of the the numbers kind of behind some of this stuff here, right? So if you look at 
do we even have to talk about the the grading here for fields? I mean, it's a 50.2. So it's kind of shocking that it's not even lower, about a 74 for Baker. But again, I want to continue uh, talking about fields here a bit more. Uh, he had a ha- negative half a point EPA per play. And the thing that fields, you could say that was good from a statistical EPA part about the performance is no, no interceptions, right? He was taking sacks left and right, but he didn't turn the ball over and make a big negative play that way. And they got a DPI, which was a little bit questionable, which helps and contributes to his numbers when you can, when you include that in. And I do most of the time for the numbers there. Um, his completion rate over expected was a negative. Well, it was a negative 39. So it's just one of the, one of the worst that we could see there. Um, he had a three second time to throw versus Dalton was more like 2.6. So not too high of a time to throw. Honestly, they were trying to run some quick game, which didn't end up working out, out too well. And I think what's interesting about this game is people have been very, very critical of Matt Nagy. And I'm sure Nagy deserves a lot of criticism for what he did there, but this bears performance. I mean, this was such, this was just like the proverbial shit sandwich that everyone's got to take a bite of this thing, whether it's Nagy, whether it's fields, whether it's the offensive line, whether it's the receivers or them getting open or not, or making plays. There was just so many mistakes across the board here that no one gets off here. And I think the focus, if I were to think, you know, is the focus too much, the narrative too much blaming one person versus another, I would say for sure, it's too much blaming Nagy, at least in the circles that I'm following. And a lot of people who I follow were very into Justin Fields as a prospect. So that kind of makes sense. Now, the pressure rate in this game, believe it or not, his pressure rate was, you know, around 50%. So it's not off the charts, right? The thing that happened here with the nine sacks is 56% of those pressures turned into sacks. Okay. He's pressured 16 times, nine sacks. That's enormous. Uh, I think Joe Burrow was the highest number coming into this week, and it was somewhere more around 35, 40%. So he's just taking sacks left and right. If you think about Miles Garrett, he only had eight pressures, but he had five sacks. At least we we recorded him with five sacks. I know the official NFL number, maybe four and a half or something like that. We don't do half sacks. Uh, so again, five sacks, but only eight pressures. So he's just t- churning those pressures into, into sacks. Uh, there are a few different things that I think need to be talked about in some of the narrative here. Again, when everything is being blamed on Nagy, first one was like, why are you not rolling at, rolling them out more often? Yeah, he only rolled out four times, but you know, there's not a ton of rollouts across the league. And I think some of some of the offenses where you normally see it, like the Rams, I'll talk about later, they didn't do that much this week. So he did roll out four times, but you know, guess what? He was one for three. He had a not he had nine yards passing, and then he took a sack on one of those for negative nine. So zero net passing yards on those rollouts. Another thing is if we just look at Fields' numbers when he wasn't pressured. So let's just take pressure out of the equation. Let's take the fact, you know, forget about the fact that they weren't giving him um, enough max protect plays that everyone's complaining about. Forget about the fact that uh, Jason Peters was, was, was being left on an Island too much against miles Garrett, who, again, I said, miles Garrett actually didn't pressure that much. He just got a ton of sacks on those pressures. Let's, let's ignore all that stuff there. You know, Fields wasn't good even when he wasn't under pressure. So under, if, you're, if, if I'm saying not under pressure, there's no any chance of taking a sack, right? Even when he wasn't under pressure, he was four of 13 for 48 yards. So again, no pressure. Fields still wasn't good. Nothing was working. I don't think you can blame it on scheme. I don't think you put it at the feet of anyone. Everyone is taking blame in this here. Now, there are a couple of different game management things that I think you can blame Nagy for 100% of the time. And... 
there was a fourth and two at the 29 early in the game that, that they didn't go for. You got to know you're a big underdog. Uh, the offense, you have some questions there. It was a one and a half percent win probability that they passed up there. And the bigger one, in my opinion, was the fact that it was fourth and two at the four yard line where they got a DPI. They were able to bring it down there. And they were already losing at that point by, um, I think it was 17 points. And, and uh, no, actually, maybe it was 13 points. But, they, but the, the bigger point was a two, three point win probability that they gave away by not going for that cir- circumstance. I know you want to stay in the game, but forget about staying in the game here. Um, if you made the kick here, the win probability only went up to 9% versus 6% if you fail on the, on the fourth down conversion. So you're not even getting that much upside. Whereas if you would have converted and then scored the touchdown, your win probability would have gone up above 20%. I mean, it's like a huge, huge, huge difference. And you just can't pass those up for quote unquote, staying in the game, which is what they were trying to do at that point. Um, you know, Baker's numbers weren't as great as you would have uh, as you would have hoped on here. I said he had the 74% uh, 74 passing grade, which was pretty good. He was killed a little bit because he took two, his EPA numbers were pretty poor because he took two sacks on uh, fourth down. That was another thing. The Browns went for it on fourth down twice and he was sacked on both of those. So they were they they had you know the negative side of variance. They 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 caught poor variance here on those on this defensive pass interference, and they still dominated the game. But he lost about seven and a half eight eight EPA on that. What I think was interesting is looking at Odell Beckham Jr. and I want to talk about him for a second here. There's been talk of how the Browns' office might be better without Odell Beckham Jr. And I know it sounds absurd to to agree with that, but I think there's some truth to that. What was Interesting about this dynamic was um, OBJ got a 32% target share here. It was really the Kareem Hunt and OBJ show. Hunt had 21% target share. OBJ had 32% target share. I don't know if we've had games. I could be wrong about this, but I'm trying to think of games where Landry has missed a game because Landry kind of comes through and normally plays a lot of time. But that Jarvis Landry has been out and Beckham has played. And I think... Landry being out really got more targets to, to Beckham. And the thing with Beckham that has been discussed, and this is discussed in league circles, you know, this is discussed maybe even by some people, you know, behind the scenes on the Browns is that he needs to be fed. And Baker's just not the guy who's normally going to feed him, especially when he has a very reliable target like Jarvis Landry out there. So without Landry, Beckham got fed here and he looked, seemed engaged. He seemed, you know, be more similar to that, that guy who was in, who was with the Giants, who was getting fed targets constantly from Eli Manning and was able to produce there. So I think that's something to look forward uh, next week is to say, hey, maybe, you know, Beckham, it's not necessarily like Beckham and Baker aren't gelling well together. It's maybe if Beckham's out there with another target hog like Jarvis Landry, someone who Baker uses as a security blanket more, that he can become disengaged and then they get off of the same page there with Baker. So hopefully that trend will continue going forward. All right, let's go to Ravens, Detroit. So the Ravens pulled this out. We all saw the 66-yard kick from Justin Tucker. Uh, Sammy Watkins almost blew it by not going out of bounds the play before. What's interesting about this one was uh, the EPA per play for Goff and Jackson was about the same at 0.15, which is you know an okay number, not a great number. That's probably like a 60th percentile type of number. 
And, but Goff graded at 65 and Lamar graded at 86. And I think the Lamar grade is a little bit inflated uh, for his passing grade to 86. He had two turnover-worthy plays, four sacks. Uh, two of the four sacks were graded negatively, meaning we said that they were Jackson's fault. So despite all of those negatives, he had a great grade because he had six big-time throws. Now, he never had more than four big-time throws in a game. Um, he had four once before that's it. So he had six in this particular game, despite, and again, they didn't have that many points. Now, two of those big time throws were drops by Marquise Brown. So that played into it is the fact that his numbers weren't better. His EPA wasn't better because of those drops. He had a positively graded throw rate of 45%. So it was an enormous number there for Jackson. So I thought that was interesting. And, you know, he wasn't running though. So that's another question with this offense. He only had two design runs. He had a negative one EPA in those design runs. He did have five scrambles, but again, those scrambles are a part of him uh, going, dropping back the pass a lot and not running as much. He had 15 design runs in week two uh, against the chiefs. He only had, he only had two in this last game against, against the lions, uh, 40 passes, 17 runs, they were about at a 50-50 ratio going into this game. So this really was skewed over towards the Ravens relying on that passing game. So it's interesting to see the Ravens pull the game out doing that. But again, 19 points, maybe we can juice that up because of the drops that we saw from Marquise Brown there and others. But still, it wasn't a successful passing game. And I think that's part of the problem with the Ravens is despite this 86 passing grade that Jackson had, I don't think we could say it was necessarily a successful game. I mean, his time to throw was 3.8 seconds. It's the highest we've seen since any game since his rookie season. So there's a little bit of a disjointed thing going on when he was playing at his MVP level in 2019, the ball was getting out quicker. Uh, there were more plays where he's playing at a higher success rate here, as opposed to, um, obviously in a higher EPA generation generating rate there. Uh, it's one of the worst running games we've seen for the Ravens. Just overall, they were losing a half a point EPA per rushing attempt. I mean, it was a small sample, but there were a couple of failed third downs that they had there. There was a holding penalty on second and one and taking, you know, going from second and one to second and 11 is a massive negative. Uh, and Jackson did have a 31 yard scramble, but that fed into his drop back numbers, not his design run numbers. Um, but what we did see here is that Lamar was able to succeed when they really needed him to pass at the end of the game. But, you know, having to convert a 14, four, fourth and 19 is a kind of a weird way of having to convert that there. Um, but props to Justin Tucker giving us, I think what might've been the highlight of the entire football Sunday, honestly, was him making that kick, him taking the little extra jump step as he was going forward. So I would say, you know, props to the Ravens for winning that game, but, continues to be a worry about that offense and what's going on there. There's, you know, a scenario where Clyde Edwards Hilaire doesn't fumble. They don't get this kick here and they're zero and three right now, the way that that offense and defense have been playing. So definitely have some concerns for them. Uh, next game, New Orleans versus the saints versus the uh, Patriots. The saints win 28 to 13. Winston was at 0.17 EPA per play. Uh, Mac Jones, First outright awful game here, negative uh, 0.23 EPA per play. So negative 0.2, which is really, really bad. The grading, uh, what's interesting here is the grading were like flipped. So the grading, Winston only had a 50 passing grade and Jones, uh, Mac Jones had a 66, which 
complete opposites of what you saw from their EPA. So Winston was not credited with any big time throws. And I think there's some fairness to that. The first touchdown that we saw Camara score was kind of a blown ish sort of coverage by Kyle Vanoy and that defense. Um, he didn't have to really press the ball downfield that much. They were able to just grind down as they were moving. Um, you only have one turnover worthy throw. That one was a little bit questionable to me. He was trying to squeeze it in to, I think it was Callaway. And we called that when the Callaway was surrounded by a few guys. Surprisingly, we didn't give him a turnover worthy play on the no look touchdown pass <laughs> that he had when he was falling down and he threw that up. That one was actually graded to zero, which I'm surprised that he didn't get a negative despite the fact that uh, they ended up scoring there. Now for Mac Jones, the big negatives for his EPA was he took over 14. He lost over 14 points on his interceptions. Um, you know, one was a late one that was given that was given a turnover worthy play. Um, the other one was not a turnover worthy play, which went off of John U. Smith's hands. And then he kind of flipped the ball up in the air and that ended up being a pick six. So it makes sense that that's part of the disagreement between our grades and the EPA is that a play like that would not count. Now the Patriots defense, 11 pressures uh, for the Patriots defense. Uh, but only three of them came in less than 2.4 seconds. And this is a stat that I pointed out about this defense going into this game, which was they were a top five pressure defense and their percentage of dropbacks that they were pressuring their opposing quarterbacks, but they were more like in the mid twenties when it came to how many of those pressures were coming in fewer than 2.4 seconds and less than 2.4 seconds. And the reason that's important is because it's a little bit more sustainable if you're able to derive that pressure by being quick rather than maybe slow decision-making on the part of your opposing quarterback or having the coverage hold up to be able to, to get pressure because that coverage is less sticky week after week. So it, it, it came through in this game, right? Um, The fact that they didn't have that many pressures, didn't get there that quickly. And Winston was able to be successful because of that. The other huge factor in this one was the Patriots, uh, running game, their design run game, negative 0.3 EPA, uh, only a 35% success rate, which are low, low numbers for this running game that's been doing extremely well. Uh, they were functional, you know, in the first two games. And this was an 80% pass ratio that they ended up having to put here as they got down early. And their normal game script, which Jones has been thriving in, got thrown off. Now, his grade wasn't that poor in this game, but how he comported himself was off and the numbers were way off. And I think it had to do with the fact that he's not, you know, he's a rookie. He's not playing with maybe the highest end talent uh, in some positions. If they can't run the ball effectively and play defense to keep the score down, there could be some issues for this offense that we saw here in this game. And this is not what they were able to do. James White is also out now for a few weeks so I don't know who they're gonna replace him with Brandon Bolden who's a special teams guy that Belichick loves and really trusts he came in and took a decent amount of that share I think JJ Taylor who has a receiving history in college is going to come in and be important to there but that's been an important piece of their offense I mean um, James White has been successful. I mean, he's been out, he was outscoring Damian Harris in PPR leagues because of how involved he was. He was converting a lot of first downs, his yards per route run. I think he was 10th overall, including receivers and everybody uh, going into this last week in his yards per route run. So he's been a very, very important part of that offense and an important safety blanket for Mac Jones. So without him there, that's something 
to pay attention to going forward. Um, and just generally, when we're talking about James White and also Jacoby Myers, I mean, these guys are getting 40 plus percent of the target so far this year. And they're the cheap guys who are retained for the Patriots. And then the Patriots, you know, they brought in Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, uh, Hunter Henry, John Smith, and they're all getting about 10 to 13% each of target share. I mean, you can't expect them all to be superstars, but really none of them are functioning like superstars right now. I mean, John Smith in particular, four-year contract, $50 million, $30 million guaranteed. He had a killer drop on that one that became the pick six. He dropped another screen later. Uh, his A dot this season is 4.1 yards, and I know they're trying to use him as a yak run after catch guy, but still, um, is that really someone you wanted to make a top five paid tight end in the league here? Um, in this game, you know, he just needs to start making plays. He had six targets and he had one catch, which was a four yard gain in the flat on third and 11, you know, where they're basically just giving it to him. Not good, not good, not good. We need to see more from. Johnu Smith going forward. Okay, before I continue the rest of the games here, let me tell you, DraftKings is a sponsor of the Unexpected Points podcast. Uh, week three of football is in the books, and now it's time to review the tape and get ready for week four with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off another action-packed week, DraftKings is giving new customers $150 instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. Listen up because you don't want to miss this. Head to DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet of $1 on any week three game to receive $150 in free bets instantly. Sorry, week four game. Uh, If Sportsbook is not available yet in your state, DraftKings has huge cash prizes for grabs all season with their daily fantasy contests. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code PFF to receive $150 in free bets. And when you place a $1 bet on any football game, that's promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. All right. Next game on the agenda. Cardinals, Jaguars. Cardinals 3-0. Um, maybe I was a little bit early on wondering if this was going to be hot seat time for Cliff Kingsbury. Not that he's done a fantastic job, um, I think, so far this year. But when you're 3-0, you're 3-0. Uh, they win 31-19 against the Jaguars. EPA per play, Kyler about a quarter point per play, which is pretty strong. Lawrence, another poor performance with about negative 0.4 per play, which is going to be an under 10th percentile type of outcome. Um, he had a pick six, which is a negative eight EPA. We, we hammered him on that pick six. For those who saw the play, it was a flea flicker, and then he was throwing it out to Hollister. He didn't look enough. I'll give you, uh, I'll say. Um, but at the same time, he should have thrown the ball away. But at the same time, I mean, it's just like a, it was just a garbage play because he had pressure immediately in his face. He was throwing to the short side of the field. It just wasn't wasn't working out that way. Uh, there's also a strip sack where uh, Lawrence lost another four in EPA. He lost another two and a half on a meaningless strip sack to end the game. So that explains 
a bit of getting completely crushed, although his grading was a 51. And what's interesting about him so far is the grading has been poor. Like he's been lower. He's lower than Zach Wilson, right? Um, Despite the fact that Wilson has been pretty awful, right? I mean, he's even a little bit lower, believe it or not, from his past grading than Justin Fields so far. He's lower than Davis Mills. We're talking about Trevor Lawrence here. He is lower than pretty much everyone here. And the thing is, I think we're hitting them very, very hard on this grading system because of the turnover-worthy plays, right? Um, If we look at Lawrence so far this year, he has, let me pull up the numbers, the exact numbers here, so I don't mess anything up, but he has, I mean, he has seven interceptions already, right? But he has nine turnover-worthy plays. So when you have three turnover-worthy plays in each one of those games, he does have four big-time throws, so he's not being totally conservative there, but nine turnover-worthy plays is an absolute killer. He has but he also has nine drops that have been that have that have hurt him somewhere there. Um, so that's really been keeping him down. I'm more encouraged by Lawrence than probably any of the other rookies that I've seen because he has shown things. And I know he's shown these very, very bad plays, but I feel like a, I'd rather see a rookie do that, get some of that out of his system. He's got an A dot over 10 yards. He's, you know, his time to throw is 2.7 seconds. He's not holding the ball a super long time and looking lost in that regard. 61% of his Yards are being derived through the air, which I think is pretty strong. He's throwing it past the sticks on about 50% of his passes. So he's trying to play high-level quarterback play. It just hasn't come together yet. But I feel like someone like him, I could see it coming together before the end of the year, as opposed to um, Zach Wilson, maybe with a lot of parts that are moving there on the offensive line and issues there. Justin Fields was a complete disaster. Uh, Mac Jones is doing this. Uh, low ceiling, high floor act over there. So I would be encouraged from from what I've seen from Lawrence, despite the fact that his grading has been so bad and his EPA has been not so hot either. Uh, So Lawrence had a 51 grade in this game. Kyler was more like 74. He's very, very high. And the thing for Kyler is 7.9 a dot, which was on the lower side, but he had 9.9 yards per attempt in this game because he completed 83% of his passes. So they're just humming now. Uh, offensively completing all these passes his um what was also interesting is just the, the offensive line play for the two different offenses and the fact that the you know the Arizona defense right now this is a top five sort of defense the way they're playing defensively uh as far as EPA per play and with the same time to throw so they both Kyler and Trevor Lawrence had a time to throw of around 2.8 seconds uh, there's a 43% pressure rate on Lawrence and only a 23% pressure rate rate on Kyler. So it can kind of show you how well these offenses are functioning as far as being able to protect the quarterbacks. And, you know, some of that is you just know Jacksonville's throwing it a lot when they get down early. Uh, disappointing game for those of us like myself who were hoping for more from Rondale Moore. Rondale Moore, his uh, snap count on uh, his routes run percentage had gone from 30-something percent up into the 50s in week two, and now it dropped back down into the 30s. So he's you know not only below DeAndre Hopkins, but uh, A.J. Green was functioning as an 85% guy, and then Christian Kirk was functioning as a 65 70% guy. So he's solidly fourth right now, and he's a guy who was right near the top as far as his yards per route run, his 
yards after the catch, all this sort of stuff he was doing to start the season. And now he's, he's falling back because of the fact that he's so far down on that depth chart. And, you know, one thing I'll say, the other big play, of course, was the 99-yard run back on the 68-yard field goal try. And I joked, and I'll say this again, do not try to do that with Gus Johnson in the booth, okay? Do not put the, even the possibility that there could be a Gus Johnson screaming at the top of his lungs, uh, meme-worthy play there. And uh, Kingsbury did that. And despite that, they still crushed and ended up winning this game because of how good Kyler has been. Maybe I got to start giving the guy some credit and saying, hey, uh, maybe he can be that type of guy going forward and they can have sustainability. But facing Jacksonville is not exactly the first game where you're going to say, okay, I, I'm, I believe in it because you dominated the Jaguars. We're going to need to see a little bit more than that. Okay, um, Kansas City Chargers. This is a big one, of course. Uh, Kansas City ends up, I'm sorry, the Chargers end up winning 30 to 24. First time that Andy Reid is tenure in Kansas City has a losing record at any point in time. So that's significant. If you look at the grading, Herbert was an 85 versus a 77 for Mahomes. What's interesting about Herbert's grades, we didn't give a big time throw, which I was a little bit surprised by, but no turnover worthy plays. And that had been his issue. He had been having one or two fairly bad turnover worthy plays, um, almost all interceptions. I mean, he had a fumble that he had the fumble that went flying out of the back of the end zone in week one, but that was a little bit of a weird one. So he's mostly been making bad interceptions. So we didn't have any bad interceptions, right? Uh, for Mahomes had two big time throws and one turnover worthy play. And even for Mahomes where the interception that he had, you know, it was third and 10. So if you think about it, throwing a 25, 30 yard interception, while it's bad, it's almost the equivalent of taking a 10 yard sack and punting. So it's bad, but not awful. Again, Mahomes seems to make these mistakes in context situations, which are not as bad as we might think. Uh, so just to keep that in mind. Well, and then going back to Herbert here, the reason his grade was so low is, low is he only had two negatively graded plays out of 41 pass plays. So a 5% negative play rate, extremely, extremely low. He was just solid, not making negatives. And the Chiefs defense was just not bothering him that much. I think that was a big, a big problem there is they just were not getting him out of his comfort zone. And obviously he wasn't making any mistakes there. Now, the EPA on for the two different guys here, we have Herbert had about 0.4 EPA, which is a huge number. Again, not making mistakes, doing what he wants on offense. Mahomes is still 0.25, which includes, um, you know, that interception, that poor interception that he had, um, includes the interception on the drop right? As part of that's not restricted out of there, restricted out of there, we boosted up even higher. So again, Mahomes continues to perform extremely well at EPA. He's, you know, in the top three in his EPA per play, but still in the teens for his grading. Um, The three turnovers were the most impactful plays there. So there was the drop that ended up being intercepted. There was the fumble by Edwards Hilaire. And then um, so that those two, and then the, the other turnover that they had, uh, were 6.7 negative EPA, 6.1, and 3.5. Huge, huge, huge negatives there for them. Um, and the, the reason, the thing that kept Kansas City in the game was they were very good at converting on third down. They converted six of 10 third downs, 1.5 more than expectation. LA was only six of 16 and converting some of those, which was negative 1.5. Now, 
I'm going to hit this theme that I've hit a couple times at Kansas City is I just think they need to be passing it a bit more. They're down 14 nothing in this game. So they were a negative game script a lot of the game, yet their 66% pass percentage was not that out of the ordinary for them, right? Again, let's get that to 70 or 75%, especially in these circumstances when you're down multiple scores early. They had negative EPA per rush if you take out uh, a Mahomes rushing play on a scramble play where, where he gained a first down. So again, not running the ball well over and over again. Fumbles from Edwards Hilaire. Uh, I just don't get it there. They're going to have to start pressing their advantage a bit more and not hoping to win all these one score games. Now, all the fourth down decisions, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Um, you know, the bonkers play though, I think. And well, first of all, fourth and nine decision to go for it there after getting a penalty, which they converted via defensive pass interference, the chargers converted that was kind of insane to, to, to go for that. <laughs> now, I, I know they, they, they did it. They did what they can do. You know, they, they knew they were facing the chiefs that they needed to do that. That's fine, but probably should have just taken what they had there uh, on fourth and four and kicked the field goal. And then a fourth and nine definitely kicked the field goal, but that's the way it goes. And the real bonkers decision though, was the fact that at the end of the game, they threw in, the score and then left Mahomes enough time to come back and potentially score a touchdown to win by a point in this game. And if you look at Brandon Staley's reasoning for this, he says it was a fierce crosswind, a 20 mile per hour wind. And that's why he wanted to make sure they were just going to, they were worried about the snap, the hold, the procedural stuff. You know, as you know, they missed the extra point after that, although this field goal would have been much closer. So I don't think they would have missed this one at all. This is with a, like a 98% field goal try they could have run down the clock kicked it with time expiring and won the game that way i know there would have been maybe some second guessing if they missed that but that's a play that even in 20 mile prior wind you go ahead and do and so i'm not you know fine brandon staley you know you're you're pushing things you're being aggressive but this is really this differentiation between aggressiveness and quote-unquote analytics they're not the same thing going if going forward and fourth and nine because your conversion rate is so low and they were somewhat lucky to get a conversion there with the dpi not the best idea uh scoring the touchdown and leaving time on the clock for mahomes rather than kneeling the ball and kicking the field goal at the end of the game again another poor play and, and you know if you want to just go ahead and run the ball on that play i'm sure that kansas city's defense if they were smart they would have just let them score running the ball right why throw a fade or do whatever you're doing there to to avoid something at least run the ball because even if you're unsuccessful on that run then you're going to run clock so there's like not a bad thing that can happen running the ball other than taking a holding penalty. So just make sure you're running straight up the middle as quickly as possible and not worrying about the hold. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that could have gone with that. And Staley definitely had the wrong decision there though. I don't want to say, Oh, you know, analytics guru, Brandon Staley is pushing aggressiveness, all this sort of stuff. Aggressiveness does not equal analytics. And I think that's important to always keep in mind. Okay. Falcons giants. I mean, we could probably skip this whole game, but I think What's interesting about this is, you know, Ryan only had a 52 passing grade, but he had 0.2 EPA. So he had a much better EPA than his passing grade. He had three turnover worthy plays, but no interceptions. So he got pretty lucky there. 4.8 ADOT. I mean, as uh, Charles McDonald, friend of the pod, 
has said in the past and Falcons fan that his arms looking like pulled pork or he might be pulled pork is what he said, which is one of the best quotes there. He's looking a little cake case cookies. Uh, he's starting to look a little case cookies for Matt Ryan. So I would be, I'd be worried about that. Um, if you look at his EPA per dropback percentiles, ninth, 14th, 46th, and this was the best performance he had, but again, three turnover worthy plays that none of them ended up in actually being a turnover. Uh, the giants defense. Let's talk about that. Cause I think this is an important theme here where they were one of the better defenses to end last season. In particular, they were 14th in EPA per play last season. Now they're 30th. And this is 30th after facing Teddy Bridgewater, who admittedly has been, you know, good this year. So maybe we won't discount that much for the Teddy Bridgewater fact, Taylor Heineke, and the artist formerly known as Matt Ryan, right? So after facing those three guys, they're 30th in EPA per play. They're not generating turnovers. I think that's a big deal. They had 11, um, they had 11 uh, INTs last year. They had 11... I'm sorry, they had um, their efficiency against the dropback. I want to hit first. So the efficiency versus the dropback, they're 24th this season versus 12th last year. 12th was really the great point that they had there. They're seventh in success rate against the run last year um, and 27th in, in efficiency. So their run defense, a lot of it was, was based on, you know, keeping these efficiency down despite the fact that they were grinding so much. Um, they only have one interception this year on that Taylor Heineke throw at the end of the game, where he kind of threw away the game. They have zero force fumbles. They had 11 interceptions last year and two force fumbles last year, which isn't a ton, but again, that's, you know, 13. And right now they only have one through three games. Uh, that's really going to be the place where they're going to have to turn around. And Daniel Jones continues to be graded pretty well, but he's just, you know, he's getting a lot of benefit for these big time throws that he's had and not the fact that he continues to be a sack taking machine. Okay. Washington football team versus Buffalo bills bills win 43 to 21 credit to me props to me for saying this is going to be a a big game, big bounce back game for Josh Allen. He had an 83 grade in this game. His EPA per play was 0.3 per play, which was pretty awesome. Um, if you look at Heineke, really, really bad game. Maybe one of the worst games of his career, grading-wise, only a 41. Uh, he only had a zero EPA per play, but that is inflated by the fact that there's a 73-yard screen pass to Antonio Gibson that he ends up getting credit for. He had three turnover-worthy plays, and the interception that he he kind of just threw out to McLaurin was, was rated a negative two. Another one to Humphreys was a negative 1.5. So those were massive negatives in our grading. And that's why he was way down at 41 for his passing grade. And he had no big time throws. Allen, one turn of worthy play, three big time throws, zero sacks. But the thing with Allen is the reason that his EPA number is down a little bit is he actually lost some EPA on the ground. And if you look at him over his career, you'd be surprised to see that despite the fact that he's been an effective running weapon, when you bring in the fumbles, um, he's actually not been generating that much EPA on the ground. So no fumbles this time, but he did lose EPA on the ground. 3.8 time to throw for Taylor Heineke and the Bills only blitz four times. So that was what they were doing here. They said, we're going to sit back and we're going to make you hold the ball and we're going to not leave. We're going to just play the coverage and 
let you make mistakes. That's exactly what Heineke did here. So a brilliant game plan from the Bills defense. And the pass percentage was about the same for the two teams, even though Washington uh, was getting killed the entire time. So that just shows you the Bills are pressing that advantage passing the ball, which they continue to do here. Um, And of course, even though it was 43 to 21, it wasn't even that close, uh, unbelievably, for because of the fact that they had the touchdown off the screen, the 75 yard touchdown there. And then they recovered a weird kickoff where they where they, the kickoff went up in the air because of the strong winds and bounced back. And they were able to recover that and then score a touchdown after that. Without that, it would have been even more destruction and even more of a wipeout. All right, before we get to the rest of the games, the final portions of the games here, I'm going to talk about Western and Southern. The Unexpected Pod, Points Podcast is sponsored by Western, Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow, Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to identify your needs and address your goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernandsouthern.com slash PFF. All right, uh, next game here, another cooked quarterback, another case cookus situation here, and that is the Bengals at the Steelers. The Bengals win 24 to 10. Uh, Burrow with a shockingly high grade of almost 90 is passing grade here versus a 56 for Roethlisberger. His EPA per play, 0.35 per play versus negative 0.1 for Roethlisberger. And what was interesting here is that Cincinnati they generated this EPA and they gen- and they did well offensively but they only had a 6% success rate running the ball and only 40% success rate passing the ball so they were very heavily reliant on big plays to boost those numbers up obviously there was the 35 yard touchdown that most people saw to Jamar Chase there was another touchdown uh later to Jamar Chase so they are continuing to run this more conservative offense where they're not passing the ball that often you only had 22 dropbacks in this game joe burrow big ben dropped back to pass 67 times okay um and let's get into more of these ben sort of numbers 2.2 second time to throw now he was only in that 2.3 ish sort of range last year so it's not extraordinarily fast but for anyone else this would be crazy how fast he's getting rid of the ball and that continues to happen here i thought deontay johnson being out may lead to them stretching the field more, getting Chase Claypool more involved. But instead, Ben and this offense decided, instead of targeting kind of an inefficient, over-the-middle receiver with over and over and over again, I'm going to target an even more inefficient running back out in the flat all the time or over the middle of the field. Um, 19 targets for Najee Harris. And five drops for Najee Harris, 10 drops in total for Pittsburgh. And I think these drops for the Steelers, I know you want to say drops are fluky, but they had a huge amount of drops last year. And data studies were done on this. I think it might have been Stephen Ruiz, who's now at the ringer, had, done a, had, had looked at different portions of the field, how high the drop rates are. And the places that Ben is throwing it, where he's throwing quick passes over the middle in particular, there's just higher drop rates on those passes because I think the receivers have trouble seeing it over the offensive line. The ball gets there so quickly. They're about to get hit. They want to make a move. So 10 drops is high on, you know, 50-something passes from Roethlisberger. But at the same time, he continues to throw the type of passes that are going to be dropped more often. 
Uh, and research has shown that. Now, they couldn't run the ball again for the Steelers. Uh, three yards per carry for Najee Harris. Point, negative 0.4 EPA per run, which is just awful, awful. Um, only a 10% pressure rate on Burrow for the Steelers without, without TJ Watt. Um, and they didn't get much of a chance though, because of the split there between the Bengals were really just focusing so much on running the ball from, a, from ahead and then being targeted with their pass attempts. Um, so that, you know, I'll, I'll give them some credit there. And some of these goal line sequences for the Steelers were just some of the worst I've ever seen. I mean, everyone was focused on the fourth and 10 where Ben throws that on the flat to Harris and he had no chance of getting that first down. And there were supposed to be receivers blocking, I guess, was the explanation afterwards, but they weren't blocking. So who knows what was going on there? But the previous drive to that also deserves some focus where, so they had the ball um, first and 13. This is near the end zone. I think it might've been, that might've been the yards to go to goal, right? Uh, first play, Ben Roethlisberger takes a sack. So it's second and 16. They get a false start. So it's second and 21, but this is the sequence that I can't believe. So second and 21, you need points, right? You're down by multiple scores. Roethlisberger first play out in the flat to Najee Harris for five yards, uh, third and 16. So third and 16, you need points. What does he do? Najee Harris again out in the flat. It's a for eight yards. And then it's fourth and eight. And they're kicking a field goal there where, you know, you need to think about going for it in some of these situations when you're down so much, your offense is doing nothing, but Robinsberg was not even putting him in a position to get a good fourth down conversion there. But if you look there, they're down 17 points, fourth and eight there. Um, if they succeed on the field goal attempt, which they did, according to the numbers that raise their win probability from 1% to 2%, whoopee-doo, right? Now, Fourth and eight, you're not going to you're not going to be that successful. You're probably only convert that. You know, I don't know how often. Let's say thirty percent of the time, maybe thirty five percent of the time. If you if you have an offense that's functional, unlike the Steelers, but if you did convert it, your win probability would have gone up to about eight percent. So at least it's you're in the the ball game. This whole thing where the Mike Tomlin continues to not want to take these chances when he needs to take chances to have some chance of winning because they're going to have to get some lucky victories here in order to stay in the playoff hunt after a poor start to the season. Okay. Uh, Indianapolis versus Tennessee, 82 grade for Tannehill, who continues to be near the top. I think he is third in our grading so far this season versus 72 for uh, Carson Wentz. Tannehill, not quite as good on his EPA, plus 0.15, negative 0.13 for Wentz. Two INTs, but no turnover-worthy plays for Tannehill. So that's explains a big difference there um, that his INTs were off of the hands of the receivers and were off of a poor route run. Um, no big time throws though for Tannehill, but he still did grade pretty well. So the one that was the Darius Leonard interception, eh, I don't know. That was close to a turnover with the play. In my opinion, the receiver is a miscommunication kind of stopped running. So we didn't end up giving it to him, but I'm not quite so sure about that. The two receivers ran into each other. They were doing a mesh and they meshed into each other, which was kind of a weird play. Uh, one big time throw and no interceptions or Turner really plays for Wentz. So the thing about Wentz is he's not really making an impact in either direction. Uh, it's like that meme where you're, you're poking something, poking with a stick and it's like, do something, please, please do something. That's what you're, you're poking Carson Wentz right now. And you're saying, can we please do something right Four throwaways on third down? Um, you're just not making anything happen. 
I mean, there was a 55% pressure rate for Wentz, so he's under pressure, and he only had a 2.6 time to throw. So he's not getting protection. I know people have tried to point out and say that you know this is maybe more about Wentz than it is about the offensive line. Sacks are QB stat, pressure is a QB stat, all that thing. But I do agree that he's getting a little bit of a raw deal here with the fact that the offensive line is not protecting him that well. Um, because Tannehill only had a 25% pressure rate despite having a little bit longer time to throw. Uh, the Colts ran the ball well, but the, you know, 50% success rate 0.2 EPA per play, but they just were not converting third downs and keeping the drives alive. Uh, they're the third worst team in the NFL when it, they have five fewer conversions than expected based upon uh, third down distances. They've been negative in every game this year. So only the lions and the jets are worse at converting third down. So this is Carson Wentz, Mr. 2017, off the charts, third down conversions. He's been the exact opposite. I think part of it is luck that could come around, but part of it is also, like I'm saying, this just conservative do-nothing passing attack right now. Uh, a little bit surprised on fourth and five when they were down nine with 10 minutes to go that uh, Tennessee, I mean, that uh, Indianapolis decided to kick. It was a pretty strong go-for-it situation. It was fourth and five from the five-yard line. Um, you know, I'm not going to give Frank rank too much of a, of an issue there, but again, it's one of these things where the upside, even if you make the field goal only brings you up to what you're going to make, it only brings it up you to 15%. Maybe you have absolutely no faith in your offense, but even if you assume a low success rate on there of 35, 40%, um, you're, you're, it's a positive to go for it in that situation. And if you succeed, you're around 30% win probability there. So you're almost doubling your win probability in the event that you succeed, so sometimes it's not just about maximizing the plus difference on the win probability, but it's like putting yourself in a realistic chance to win. And they kind of had to do that by going forward in that situation. And the Titans did this thing, which I want to talk about a little bit, because I think there's a, there's a lesson here where they went for two up seven to get it to nine. And I've seen quite a few teams do that. And it's, it's strange because you normally don't see coaches be, overly aggressive, right? But again, it comes back to this aggression and analytics are not the same thing. And I think what's happening here, and a lot of people have fallen into this one score fallacy. And the one score fallacy is that an eight point lead is a one score, is a one score game. It's a one score game is eight points. It's not really a one score. It's a two score because you need the two point conversion also. So that's why I think people do not account for enough. When you're going from seven to nine points, you are gaining the quote, making a quote unquote two score game by the fact that, but you're also potentially losing if you don't convert and your success rate on this, you know, going for two, even if you assume like a 50 something percent success rate, it still is like, maybe you should kick the extra point here in this, in this circumstance, right? You're basically just playing your chance of making a two versus your opponent's chance of making, making a two when they eventually have to do it. So I think teams are just too, are not valuing enough that differential between seven and eight points, because when you move from seven to eight, not only do you take away the possibility, the other team could go for two and win, right? But they need generally, right? There's a lot of time left in this game too, probably too much time left to go for two here, but generally they would need a touchdown a two-point conversion, go to overtime, or another score in, in regulation to win, or go to overtime and win. So that's a lot of things that have to go right for your opponent at eight points that don't have to go as right at seven points. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if teams continue to do this, like making it a quote-unquote two-score game. I think it's a little bit overvalued play. And again, 
conflates aggression with analytics. Okay, so Dolphins, Vegas Raiders, Raiders win again, 31-28 in overtime. Pretty good grades for Jacoby Brissett, 77 passing grade, 83 for Carr. EPA per play was 0.12 for Carr and 0.08 for Brissett. I mean, I think Brissett was not nearly as good as that grade, quite honestly. I mean, he was buoyed by a huge fourth and 20 pickup in overtime. He had a fourth and eight in the final drive uh, and a scramble on fourth and one on the final drive to get into the end zone. All of that stuff really boosted his, his EPA numbers. And also he got big time throw for the fourth and 20 play where, I mean, it was a great throw, but it's not really going to happen that much. You only had 4.3 yards per attempt. I just can't get behind someone having a 77 grade if they're only passing for 4.3 yards per attempt. Some people compare Brissett to being like a Ben Roethlisberger light the way he's playing. And I don't think so because it doesn't get rid of the ball that quickly, but it was pretty disgusting. I mean, look at Waddle's numbers here. 13 targets for Jalen Waddle. This is a guy who's supposed to be a burner, right? 13 targets, 12 receptions. Very, very high catch rate, only 58 yards, only 4.8 yards per reception, 2.8 average depth of target, two first downs on 12 receptions. There were some numbers that were crunched on that. And we rarely have ever seen that from anything but a running back in a very, very long time, having that many receptions without having more first downs. Um, And plus one of those throws was a safety to Waddle where he threw it out to him and he took a safety. Uh, That was the first time we've ever, there's ever been a safety on a completed pass without a penalty or a fumble in many databases too. So uh, they're setting a lot of records here with inefficient play. Now Carr's numbers would have been even better EPA wise. Like I said, he was 0.12, which is middling, you know, 60th percentile type of thing would have been even better, but he had 11.7 negative on the pick six. We did not grade that a turnover worthy play because uh, Foster Moreau stopped on the route, but and Carr was under great pressure, but eh, I don't know, probably was close. Uh, the Raiders office continues to function okay, despite being dead last in EPA per rush. They brought in Payne Barber, that hasn't helped at all. Um, they almost blew it though, because they only had a 57% pass rate in this game. They were up 14-0 early and they let the opponent get back in because they continue to run the ball. Hey, let's turn it over to Carr and let him pass some more now that he's playing at the level that he is now. Uh, one thing on the underrated, overrated discourse, I heard today about Derek Carr being underrated, and I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to um, cry foul on that. Um, again, let's stop talking about guys. The whole thing, overrated, underrated thing. The the fallacy is people talk about it as if the like when a team, when a player starts playing better then they somehow are underrated, listen, this is the highest ratedness in people's minds that have been, that Derek Carr has been since 2016 when he got MVP votes, right? So the highest opinion of Carr anyone's had in five years, people are talking about him a lot. The Raiders are three and oh, he can't be underrated now. You know, he can't be underrated now. If anything, he's probably overrated now. Uh, although I think he's, I think he was definitely underrated before going into this year, but I don't want to hear Derek Carr underrated talk. You're fundamentally misunderstanding the concept of underrated, overrated. Let's not say someone is underrated when the ratedness now by the public is as high as it's been in half a decade. Okay. Jets, Denver, 
Eh, not a lot to say here. Zach Wilson, last in the NFL in EPA per play. He was negative 0.5 EPA per play here. He's bottom three in grade. Uh, the Jets are in the first percentile in team EPA per play this game. Another five sacks for Wilson, but, you know, four drops, which didn't help him that much. His grade of a 54, again, he continues to, like, stay above 50 in these in these grades, which has ended up helping him a lot now. Um just nothing is working for the Jets offense across the board. Uh, Teddy, on the other hand, he's fourth in EPA per play and tied for sixth in his grading so far. KJ Hamler, uh, ACL out. I was hoping for more for him. He hasn't done a whole lot anyway. So you have Hamler out. You have Judy out. So Cortland Sutton, Patrick, luckily they have multiple tight ends with Albert O and then Noah Fant. So I think they still have enough to go there. This is really exciting for, for, that, for the Des- this Denver team because I was high on them going into the season as being a team that could surprise. And they haven't had, you know, the toughest competition with the Giants and the Jaguars and now the Jets, but they're dominating bad teams. So again, this is another thing where if you're going to pull out the ain't played nobody, if you're going to say ain't played nobody, if you're going to, if you, if you, if you have ain't played nobody, you better be destroying them. And that's what the, uh, that's what the Broncos are doing here. I mean, they won 26, nothing. What else do you want them to do? Right. It's not their fault. They haven't played in, they haven't played anybody, but they are dominating teams. Okay. One of the biggest games of the, of the weekend that uh, hadn't come across yet. Probably should have put this earlier in the show is the bucks versus the Rams. So the Rams win 34, 24, the grading 80 for Brady and only 74 for Stafford. I know Rams fans are going to talk about PFF bias. I do think we, we like Brady probably a little bit too much in some of these circumstances, but you know, he had four big time throws. They weren't extremely huge EPA plays, but we ended up grading them as big time throws, zero turnover worthy plays. Uh, we only had one big time throw for Stafford. And even that one was like the out and up sort of move by Deshaun Jackson, where he was totally completely wide open. So Stafford keeps like accumulating EPA, right? Like he had, he had half an EPA per play. He's number one now in amongst quarterbacks in EPA per play versus only 0.2 EPA per play for Brady. But he is driving a lot of this on some easier throws. And that's why it's not reflected in his grading quite as much. Uh, he's 10th in grading for, for his overall offensive grade right now. So it's not reflected as much there. And that's going to be the disconnect. And we can all say we're all haters um, against, against, uh, against Stafford. Now, what was interesting about this game as far as how the offense worked for the Rams is they didn't even pretend they were running the ball, right? They had a 9.5 play action rate in neutral situations. I call a neutral situation, a situation that's either, you know, second and medium to second and first down first and 10, second and medium, third and short. So situations where you could actually run the ball, right? Second and medium or second and short, of course. Um, situations where you could actually run the ball, how often are you doing play action? Because when you, when you include play action, the play action rate, but you're including like third and 10 in there, well, no one's running play action in third and 10. So it doesn't really tell you a whole lot. Um, so they only did it on 9.5% of those neutral situation dropbacks run play action, which is the lowest ever that McVeigh has done and the lowest they ever did with golf was 20 percent 
And, you know, they, they would get up well over 50% in a lot of these different games. So it was, it was definitely a new game plan for the Rams and the way they were using Matthew Stafford, just letting him sling out there and the receivers are getting open. So why not do it? I was a little bit concerned about the Rams offense and their inability to stretch the field because of the fact that Cooper cup's not exactly a burner, neither is woods, neither is van Jefferson, but Deshaun Jackson, man, did he have an impact in this game? Uh, you know, three big catches and he's just getting open. He's getting wide open. Um, so we'll see if that continues going forward, but I thought that was very, very encouraging. If he can stay healthy with the element that he brings to this, to this game. Um, and if you think about like the, the plays that he happened, there was a third and 10 where he was wide open. That was underthrown. There was a 75 yard TD, which is another third and 10. And then he had a third and five conversion where he went for 40 plus yards he had 40 yards per reception, 7.5 yards per route run. That was huge in getting Stafford's EPA boosted because those third downs are such high leverage situations, right? Um, so the Rams mix also to go back in how they were playing with Stafford. It was 70% pass the first three quarters. And then it was, you know, 65, 70% pass, 70% run in the fourth quarter. So that skewed some of the overall numbers. The Rams were 10 for 15 on third down, three more than you would have expected. Tampa Bay was only seven of 17. So that's a huge uh, factor there. Again, those Jackson huge third down plays were just monstrous there. Uh, And the Tampa Bay defense, I wouldn't be worried about them, but they've gone from eighth to 23rd in success rate. They obviously had problems with uh, the Cowboys and now with the Rams here, they're 26 on EPA per drop back. Uh, But, you know, they face some good teams. And they were good against the Falcons. When they played against the Falcons, the Falcons had less than the 10th percentile in their EPA per play. So I'm not going to get super worried about that, but it's something to keep in, in mind. And then the Rams defense, eighth in drop back EPA per play. Pretty good. You know, they're, they're, they've done well. I mean, they haven't had the toughest schedule so far, but facing Brady here um, is something. And they're going to start to go into a little bit harder, you know, divisional games going forward. We'll see how those end up playing out but I think it's good that Rams at least have maintained their defense efficiency here because that is always going to be a little bit less sticky. Okay. Seattle versus Minnesota, Minnesota wins 30, 17 props to me on this one. I was pretty high on Kirk cousins and the, and this, this team here cousins at an 83 grade. He continues to grade extremely well. Top five in our grading uh, 72 passing grade for Russell Wilson and Wilson actually got a much higher grade than his EPA. His EPA was basically flat, basically a zero, whereas Cousins was 0.5 per play, which is very strong. Wilson just had this low variance, low upside game, zero big time throws. He didn't have a single play where the EPA on the play was above three or below negative three. There was just nothing. It was just all middling stuff. And it was the opposite of what we saw from this offense, from the Seattle offense going into this game, where I even pointed out the fact that their, their drop back success rate was only 27th so far this season, but they were eighth in EPA per play. Well, flipped around here. Uh, this is a game where they had a 50% success rate, but they had zero EPA. So, you know, they had an okay success rate, poor EPA in this game. Seattle ran the ball well. 0.4 EPA per play, 98th percentile outcome. But again, they got down and they just didn't score in their last six possessions. They couldn't convert third downs, which ended up being a big problem. And Kirk Cousins, third in PFF grading, fifth in EPA. I have a feeling he's going to be on the top of my, uh, near the top of my quarterback rankings again this week. So props to me for that. Um, there were some bad decisions in this one. And there was a fairly bad decision by the Vikings not to go up 10 late in the game. 
uh, where they were up 10. It was fourth and one from the one yard line. They decided to kick the field goal. I mean, it's not a huge difference. We're talking about a basically 100% win probability versus 96, but there just wasn't that much downside. If they would have failed to go for it, given the ball back to Seattle on the half yard line, their win probability was 95% and it was 96% if they kicked a field goal. So they didn't really gain anything from the field goal. So I think that was a poor choice. And the Seahawks continued to do their sea hockey things. Fourth and seven, down 10, uh, 57 yards from the opponent's end zone. So they're on their own 43. And they go ahead and punt the ball, of course. And punting it had their win probability at 14%. If they would have gone for it and succeeded, it would have jumped up to 22%. Uh, on fourth and seven. I know fourth and seven is not easy, but you're down 10 points. You're in the fourth quarter. You got to start pressing a little bit. And um, it was just a weird game where Seattle actually did run the ball really well, but then they didn't convert on third down. Russell Wilson had his struggles. Uh, They put a cap on the Seattle passing game. And when Seattle has to grind down the field and convert third downs, they're not so good at it. Russell Wilson has not been a good third down conversion guy his entire career. So I wonder if this is going to be the continued game plan. Again, this is like a game plan sort of thing from the, from the end of last year, which is let them run the ball. But if we can be effective offensively ourselves, put them in a poor game script, uh, make them convert third downs, then we're going to have the advantage of not only suppressing their offense, but then Pete Carroll is going to join in and make poor decisions to, to really have that, what can be the differentiator in some of these close games, lean towards, uh, lean towards the opponent rather than the Seahawks offense. All right, that's everything for me. Went through all the different games. I will join you back on Friday to do an in-depth look at uh, the Thursday night game. And then we'll also get into a preview for all the different stats and trends you're going to be interested in seeing this weekend with predictions from me. Some of them good, like Josh Allen bounce back here. Some of them not so good, like the fact that Justin Fields wouldn't struggle that much against the Browns offense. So uh, hopefully more good than bad, though, for me for the rest of the season. If you enjoy the pod, rate review, please uh, leave a comment on YouTube. I check those and I will be happy to write you back. Otherwise, I'll be talking at you again on Friday. Thanks so much.